0: Recorded live in the Phantasmo Lounge, high atop the Fritz-Pothaway building in beautiful midtown Portsmouth, Virginia. It's Phantasmo After Dark, with your host, Rob Floyd, and special guest co-host, Commodore Tony Mercer. Tonight's topic, Kiss Meets the Phantom.
1: Ahoy, Rob. Hey, Tony. It's a beautiful day here on the high seas. It's a great day to be a Commodore, (laughs) and it's the perfect day to talk about Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park.
0: It's always a perfect day to talk kiss, about Kiss Meets the Phantom. Man, you know, this is what I'm surprised, really surprised we haven't talked about yet, to be honest.
1: <laughs> well, you know, when we had our production meeting for the podcast... Um, <laughs> With the board, board of directors? Yeah. By which I mean when we uh, had our text exchange that went, hey, you want to do a podcast? Yeah, all right, what do we want to do? And uh, we hadn't yet decided what it was that we wanted to do. A thought ran through my mind, and you probably won't even remember this, <laughs> I actually pitched you at one point doing a KISS podcast. This was a long time oh. ago. This was a long time ago. Yeah. And I said we should, we should go through the catalog one episode per album. Yeah. And we'll take it track by track and just talk about what we like and what we don't like. And you can talk oh. about... Uh, the costumes and we can talk about the tours mm-hmm. and, and you were, you were not into it. You weren't having it now. I think really yeah. Now we hadn't done a podcast at all at that point
0: yet. Oh, okay. This is in the way back. Way I back. I think, okay. I think
1: if you flash forward after you had got your feet wet in the podcast game, it might, it might've been a different story, but yeah. So this was actively on my mind. And then you uh, sent me a text and said, how about kiss meets the Fan of the park? Yeah. Cosmic telepathy (laughs) because i don't know what there really is to say about this as a movie so much but kiss as a phenomenon in this period that's a that's a rich topic
0: yeah and that's that's where the talk is going to be i mean we'll definitely talk about the movie but in in the context of the time it's it's really important in 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 the kiss timeline and you know, in, in, in the history of where music and rock and roll was then, a lot of people, if you weren't around back then, this means nothing. The movie itself is is an odd, goofy little, you know, cult following, cult film, right. but in the context of what was going on at the time and how big Kiss was on the, you know, pop culture scene, it was huge. I mean, I remember being a kid when this came out and, you know, sitting on the floor in front of the TV, just waiting for this thing to come on, just salivating. Because if you take into account, of course, we're going to jump all around here throughout this whole thing. But when this came out, this was is 70, what, 78 it, it premiered? 78, right. 78. Yeah. The internet was, was Star Trek technology. There was nothing, no uh, social media stuff like this. Anything you wanted to find on Kiss, especially if you were a young kid, were magazines at the 7-Eleven or whatever. Uh, rarely, if there was a clip on TV on a, you know, a variety show or a Kirshner's Rock concert, a Midnight Special, something like that. So to, fi- to have anything of Kiss, uh, merchandising aside, was rare. Not like now you can just go on the Internet and you can find any any video clip they've ever any time they've ever been filmed. You can find it somewhere, you know. So this was really big. And and also, how many other rock bands you know, had a movie made about them where they got to be superheroes?
1: Uh, when you said how many other rock bands had a movie made about them, I had an answer. But when you said superheroes, it was over there, there, there. Yeah, there isn't another one there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, there were concert films, to be sure. And then there was the odd film, like the Sgt. Pepper movie, which I guess you could make an argument that they were kind of superheroes in that. But uh, this was, you know, a made-for-TV movie, a big event, when there were only three channels plus UHF on TV. There weren't, you know, 100 million channels. So this was a thing that a lot of damn people saw and were looking forward to. Because, you know, like I say, it's hard to explain to anybody nowadays who wasn't a teenager or a young kid back then what bands were like and what the music scene and everything was like back then. Cause it's totally n- n- nothing like that today.
1: Yeah. To your point about information about the band, not being as readily available as it would be decades later. I did have a note here about uh, whatever you think about this movie, you have a couple of songs worth of pro shot concert footage. Yeah. And, and, and you mentioned uh, like midnight special or, or, uh, a, a rock concert or whatever yeah but for kiss by the time you get to the destroyer stage or by the time you get to the love gun stage it, you might get a clip on the news but you're yeah. not getting a full set on television not that i'm aware oh, of anyway no no so there had to be some thrill simply in that aspect of it to, to get a, a few songs worth of very well shot performance footage in the movie
0: oh yeah yeah i mean that, and that is the highlight of the of the film <laughs> is the live concert footage because that's where they shine. I mean, that's what they were known for was their big sh- out of this world in your face show. And that is like I said, that's definitely the highlight of the movie is you get to actually see it. If you're especially if you're too young to go to the concerts, this was just like, a you know, a Christmas gift.
1: Right. And uh, to set the stage for what was going on with the band at this point, it's 1978. So it's after Love Gun and it's after Alive 2. But it's uh before this debuted before the four solo albums were released. So it's right before the solo albums were released, and then uh, uh, we have Dynasty the next year in seventy nine. Yeah. So so that's the chronology here. Yeah. So so you're coming off of a very successful, beloved, still hard rock album at this stage with Love Gun. Yeah. And and you're and you're headed into the bizarre experiment of of what goes on in the solo albums. But uh, you're right in that in that middle spot here. And in a way, the way of thinking about the band that we'd see manifest in the dynasty era really starts here. Yeah, it starts here. As, as them being thought of as, a, as an attraction for children, essentially, and, yeah. and, and less as a serious hard rock band.
0: Yeah. And this was, uh, you know, probably at the peak of their popularity. This is right when they were on top of the world. They were probably the most well-known rock band in the world. And everybody was a Kiss fan at this point, just about. This is just before, like you say, just before the dynasty era where they tipped the scales and they started the popularity started to wane after that. But here and again, I I keep going back to you don't it's hard to explain to people how just how big they were at this time because they get a lot of uh, flack from music snobs and people who aren't fans, too, especially nowadays when they've kind of become a nostalgia act. Sorry to say still my favorite band of all time. But back then you couldn't go anywhere without seeing Kiss on something, a magazine, anywhere you went uh, somebody wearing a Kiss t-shirt somewhere. I mean, you know, they were just huge. They were so big that when somebody said, hey, you want to make a movie and be superheroes and have it on TV? And they said, yeah, they thought it was a great idea. And it turned out it really wasn't <laughs> a great idea.
1: <laughs> to your point about the merchandising and not being able to go anywhere without seeing Kiss. Yeah. I was thinking about this while I was watching the movie. The Beatles had ridiculous merchandise. Yeah. Their faces were on everything. And I think it's true to say that Kiss saw themselves as something like that. That was the model that they wanted, right? They wanted to be Paul, Gene, Ace, and Peter, yeah. like John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Each individual character in the band being recognized as an individual and there being all of the, the image and the merchandise and the and the what have you to go along with that. Now, you also have the Marvel comic book and this very silly movie that we're talking about and the, the face paint and all these other things. I think that don't make it a, a, a direct comparison to what went on yeah. with the Beatles in the Fab Four era. But I, I still think that uh, after the 60s, after that Fab Four era, something changed in, in rock and in the perception of rock music and uh-huh. in the, the tone of rock journalism that was very that was very hostile to this was very hostile to rock bands that had balls and things of that nature. You had this, you had this sort of sincerity, integrity pretense that is dominant in rock Mm -hmm. journalism, for example, in the seventies, that is, that is doing no favors to this band and, and, and keeping in mind that those types were not supportive of this band going back to the very beginning. So it's not as though the journalist turned on Kiss when, the Phantom of the Park came out. But it is interesting to me to consider the the heat that they took pretty much from the beginning for the way they went about things and to wonder if in the era of Paul Revere and the Raiders, for example, it would have been such a big damn deal if it would have been so offensive to the the rock intelligentsia. You see what I mean? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, because, I mean, the Beatles made, what, four movies during their career there? Yeah. And theatrical well, films. Yeah. And you know, good, bad, indifferent, whatever people think about them, they were a success. And I don't think that they got a lot of flack for just doing it because uh the, they were so popular. But like you said, it took a turn uh, in the 70s, the way rock journalists and people viewed bands and things.
1: Well, you know, I, I don't know that I, I would want to compare Phantom of the Park directly to A Hard Day's Night. I mean, that that's probably <laughs> not a very good idea, but... but... Yeah. But the point stands nonetheless. So Hanna Barbera produced this film.
0: Indeed.
1: What were they thinking? <laughs> Who thought that would be a good idea? Yeah,
0: there was they were looking for every avenue or looking at every avenue of merchandising back then. And I remember reading somewhere in a magazine whether it was true or not, one thing they were even looking at was a Saturday morning Kiss cartoon at one point, uh, which never materialized. So maybe that's where the connection to Hanna-Barbera came from, was from those from those meetings.
1: Uh, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but I was curious how that came about. And again, asking myself the question, who on earth thought that would be a good idea? <laughs> and what had Hanna-Barbera ever done to convince anyone that it would be a good idea for them to produce this thing? <laughs> I looked it up to see if uh, if Hanna-Barbera had done much live action at this point. Uh, and the answer to that is they'd done some. Not a great yeah. deal, but but some. But in their list, in their filmography, if you will, the thing that really stood out to me was Banana Splits in Hocus Pocus Park. Oh, which I believe was from 1972. That's Banana Splits in Hocus Pocus Park.
0: I am not aware of that. Of course, I know the Banana Splits, but I'm not aware of that particular film.
1: I've never seen it, but it it was on their their, uh, filmography on the wiki. And you know what I thought as soon as I saw that. I was thinking the theme park thing worked well for the banana splits why not put this rock band in the same situation
0: yeah yeah and well you know and if you notice that they're in one scene where they're in devereau's lab there's a couple of mascot heads back on the wall behind him and one of them is a banana splits head
1: i missed that and i'll tell you why i missed that in this viewing
0: uh-huh.
1: uh so, so you watched the dvd right
0: yeah yeah we will we'll go into that in a minute i'll tell you which version and all i watch but yeah okay
1: well, when we talk about versions, I'll uh, I'll finish this thought, but I actually watched it on on a on a much smaller screen than my television, so I probably missed some visual details. Oh,
0: there. okay. Yeah, one of the thing there was I think it was Fleagle, the banana splits leader, it was hit the head to that costume, and also in another shot was a head from one of the mascots the from the hair bear bunch costumes. <laughs> There's a 70s cartoon for you. Oh, my. oh real quick I gotta say real quick we, we said that we had, earlier that we had a request to actually do this one and yeah we did Greg requested this and so this is for you Greg if for nobody else uh, <laughs> this is your fault so anyway back to what we we're talking about <laughs> um, the version that I watched is the European theatrical version that they released after it was broadcast on TV in the United States. Uh, It was called Attack of the Phantoms, and that's on the Kissology box set volume two. It has that complete, uh, the European film version, Attack of the Phantoms. Uh, I have not watched the original broadcast version, Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park, which I do have on VHS, by the way, big clamshell box. (laughs) Uh, I haven't watched that in a lot of years, but watching this version, I do remember, I did notice uh, quite a few differences in it. And then I had to, re- of course, I had to read up on it a little bit to make sure I was thinking right in the differences. The major difference is the music in the broadcast TV version during most of the fight scenes and you know the walking around and stuff. It's that Hanna Barbera cartoon fight music,
1: stock music, yeah, which
0: which is one of the things that really kind of makes it give it that a goofy reputation. Because if you watch the European version, all the incidental music and every and the fight music is actual kiss songs. And right. you can tell that this was released like a year or months after because most of the music is from the solo albums.
1: Right, right. I watched the original version, a VHS rip that I found oh. on the internet and ended up and ended up having to watch on my phone a small screen less than ideal, but I thought it would be interesting to be able to talk about the, the yeah. versioning. And yeah, the, the stock Hanna-Barbera music that they use for the fight scenes, it, it just, it really, it, it's so... It kills it. <laughs> it really sort of de me to sit through it in a way, yeah. you know, because at least as, as bad as some of those scenes are, oh, and they are, uh, uh, at least... Hearing love and chains under them, yeah, uh, is exciting to some extent because you know I love that song. Yeah. But uh, the, the the goofy music, the cartoon
0: music, yeah, is
1: Yeah, and you've got the scene of the robot demon, the robot Gene Simmons yeah. at- attacking the the park. So Kiss is being framed for an attack on the park is is the uh, the the point of that scene. And I'm just imagining what it would be like with God of oh, Thunder yeah. under it. And the answer is pretty yeah, well, cool. Well, you know, in, in its own little way, but with, with the, the Hanna-Barbera yeah. music, it doesn't. In
0: Attack work of out. the Phantoms, the music they actually use for that scene is the opening to Gene's solo album. When the, the shadows on the wall, and as he's busting through the wall. And when the cops surround him, it's that that orchestral, that, oh, that exorcist sounding stuff. And it really, I mean, you know, it's like, man, this isn't quite as goofy as I remember it. it, And then it goes into radioactive during the actual fight. And it's like, man, you know, it really really helps a lot, (laughs) the music.
1: I read uh, that one of the versions, it might have been the Australian, has New York groove under the... (laughs) Yes,
0: it does. And it has an insert of I Was Made For Loving You in there somewhere, too, apparently. Those wacky Australians. Uh, Yeah, it's a little bit different there. Another another big difference in this one is the editing in in this theatrical version is a lot more choppy than the TV version, and some little scenes. There's a couple seconds of extra scenes that I don't ever remember seeing before, and some of the scenes are out of order, which kind of makes this... The music in this makes it awesome, but the editing makes it a lot worse than the TV version. A couple of the big things is there's one scene where the two security guards, Brian James and the other guy, yeah, are talking in their little trailer office, and Devro pipes gas in and they pass out, and two robots come in and drag them out. Well, then you see them show up again, and for no, I mean for no reason were they abducted because they don't become you know mindless robot zombies they just show up again later uh, so i don't know why that scene was inserted in the film once it was edited why it was inserted back in, you know inserted back in this version and the other big thing that hit me was the scene where after the girl meets the band after the show then you know she's back at the place that they're staying and in the tv version i see if i tell me if i'm remembering this correctly they're in the the living room area and they show her the talisman and then another scene later, they're outside and Paul's playing guitar and Peter's singing Beth.
1: They, they cut out of Beth to that and back to Beth? No, they, they cut out of Beth, I think, while the boyfriend is trying to steal the talisman.
0: But they show her the talisman before Beth. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, because Devereux Adep- hears through the bug he's planted in her name tag about the talisman so then he sends sam to go get him Well, in the european version it cuts like after the concert it cuts to them doing beth and she's like already hanging out with them doing they're singing beth sam goes and looks for the talisman and then the scene after that is them explaining about the talisman to her and Deborah hearing about them so they it's like they put those scenes out of order it's like how would he know to go look for the talisman if he hadn't heard of them yet
1: yeah that's uh yeah
0: that's and odd. there's a there's a couple of other bits in the movie that are like that like they cut out almost in the european version almost all of ace's dialogue
1: which isn't very much to yeah. begin with we there's say. not much at all um he's got other than Ack, he's got
0: four yeah. lines and maybe? the one by the the pool where he says something you know right. whatever. they cut that out um that was really just that was noticeable
1: it's it's a Haya curly or something like that
0: yeah and then something he says something 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 star child Oh, you know? you're right,
1: you're right. Okay, so that so yeah. that's five. yeah, Five lines, because I was thinking you only had one at the pool. <laughs>
0: yeah, that was cut out, and then I can't remember, but there's some transition or something, maybe it was that, but where they decide to go to the park to look for Sam, it's like all of a sudden they're walking through the park looking for Sam, and there's no transition of why they went to look for him, in, in this version, in the European version anyway. But the music like i said is so much better but it's odd that they i guess they were trying to promote the solo albums in europe there's a lot of tunes from the solo albums from each well mainly from peter and from paul is most of it right uh which is odd because ace had the best solo album everybody agrees
1: except for the australian version where you get new york yeah
0: yeah you do get now you do get fractured mirror at the that's the first song you hear of kiss after the credit opening credits is when Sam leaves the girl to go find Deborah and she's walking it's after he's gone and she's lost trying to find him he's missing now and she's walking by herself through the park as it's closing fractured mirrors playing, and it's it's really it's great I mean it's a really moody thing and and you know it really sets her per, like her feeling lost it helps a hell of a lot
1: <laughs> for that scene. speaking of the first you hear or perhaps the first you see of kiss one thing I noticed is that uh uh, Kiss gets essentially a Godzilla setup in this movie, yeah. where you, you see them over the opening, the title sequence, and then a half hour later they finally appear. <laughs> yeah, the majority of Godzilla films are the same way. You'll get a, a brief appearance of Godzilla at the beginning, and then uh, half an hour later he'll uh, have his first actual scene. Yeah. So I had a note here for Godzilla structure for the uh, for the Kiss yeah. team. But can we talk about that opening? Oh, the opening is awesome it's cheesy as hell but it's
0: awesome <laughs> i mean you know it starts off with of course this rock and roll all night has got to be the tune and with them green screened over scenes of the rides in the park at night i mean the highlight of it is gene looming over the roller coaster like godzilla that's the coolest part the rest of it of them like floating around on the the ride cars and,
1: <laughs> and stuff well, Gene menacing the roller coaster, that is most definitely the best part. But let me tell you about the two favorite, my two favorite parts, which are the worst parts. One is Peter drumming in the air, just sticks flying around over nothing. <laughs> Drummers get the short end of that stick. You know <laughs> yeah. what? It's like air drumming that never looks good. No one can no. pull that off. Right. It looks like he's conducting Another one is of Paul performing in his uh, inimitable Paul style who decides that what he really needs to give us is a turn and wiggle of the butt. He shakes his ass for us in the opening. And you know what that makes me think of Gene and Paul, of course have their, their stock topics, their stock sound bites that they like to get into uh, for interviews. So we wanted to be the band we never saw. That's one that they go to a lot, but one interview, I can't remember which one with, with Paul, where he says, we wanted to be the band we never saw. And he, he goes on to explain that he would imagine, while he was performing, he would imagine himself in the audience. Yeah. And, 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 and he would ask the audience Paul what he wants to see. And so audience Paul, in the mind of performing Paul, would actually be <laughs> directing performing Paul and telling him what to do.
0: Uh-huh. And he would
1: say, okay, now I want to see you kick. All right, now turn and shake your ass. Yeah. <laughs> and that always bothered me because, uh, <laughs> I mean, let's just assume that Paul here is trying to imagine what the young ladies in the audience might want to see. Yeah. And that's why audience Paul directed stage Paul to turn around and shake his ass. And not that, you know, audience Paul would have been uh, watching the who perform and thinking if only Roger Daltrey would turn and shake his ass. <laughs> the trouble with all of this is that Paul is not a particularly skilled ass shaker. So it's, it's, it's <laughs> uh, as, <laughs> as is evidenced in the opening of oh, kiss meets oh. the Phantom of the park.
0: Uh, I you know I've really never given that that much thought before. Uh, thanks for that. <laughs>
1: look I, I i'm comfortable you know i i wouldn't request that a man shake his ass for my amusement but i'm perfectly comfortable judging the skill level involved and Paul, well, skill is skill it's, it's you know mediocre at best
0: <laughs> well let's get off of paul's ass for a minute and uh how <laughs> about that last shot of them standing on the fountains and then that's set, setting their their supernatural their superhero powers that they can walk on water right at the end of the credits there
1: you know, speaking of their supernatural powers, and I don't mean to change the subject, but we probably should point out that this is after the Marvel comic book. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now there there you go. Then again, that's showing, you know, how big they were at the time, is that Marvel approached them about doing a comic book version of them as superheroes because of their larger than life superhero, you know, looking personas on stage. And the comic book, if nobody's ever seen this, you know, if you haven't, then why not um had these four youths from uh new york the four youths youths finding these mystic talismans and turns them into superheroes and they end up fighting dr doom at the end and uh what mephisto and all kinds of other villains and things before it's over and they each have their individual powers paul of course can shoot lasers and beams from his star eye peter is super agile and acrobatic and can fight like you know daredevil Ace can shoot lasers and vibrate as vibratory powers from his hands and he can thumb like he's hitching a ride and teleport the entire band away. And of course, Gene can fly and is super strong and breathes fire. That's basically it for their powers and all. They also did a second comic a year later. Uh, the first one, they had the destroyer costumes. The second one, they had the love gun costumes like they have in the movie here. And it was just built on that and, you know, did more. And this is capital. Like you said, was capitalizing on that on the popularity of that comic book
1: it's interesting to me that the movie almost assumes familiarity with the comic in that the comic introduces the idea of the the talismans and of the band becoming superheroes but the the movie doesn't bother they have talismans they have superpowers they are superheroes why you'll never know they're also a rock band deal with it right does kiss meet the phantom of the park potentially take place in the marvel universe well
0: you know it could and does anyone care why not no. And you know, and that's the thing. that's that's, that's touching on a, p- a point that I bring up with with superhero movies a lot. You know, you're watching this movie, you're obviously a KISS fan already watching the film. It, even if you're watching it out of curiosity, you have some familiarity with KISS at at this time, at the time it came out, okay? Like you said, there's no origin, there's no why. You just go in, it's KISS, they're a rock band and they got superpowers and you're ready for the rest of the story. You don't give a shit about an origin you want to see the action going on you want to see gene breathe some fire you want to see ace shoot some lightning out of his hands you know you want to see him fight some bad guys and play some rock and roll
1: you want to see paul stanley do a rudy ray moore style kung fu pose exactly (laughs) poor paul which which he does complete with awesome facial expression rudy would have been proud
0: oh it was that was that was painful to watch again
1: if rudy could have been bothered to watch kiss meets the phantom of the park he would have been (laughs) proud (laughs)
0: Indeed, indeed. But, you know, that's my big problem with a lot of the superhero movies now is whenever they bring a new actor in, they have to reboot the franchise and they got to do the origin again. You know, it's like how many origins have we had for Batman or for Superman or Spider-Man? Who in the world does not know their origin already and didn't know even beforehand? Basically... So they, you got to spend half this movie bringing this character up to who they're supposed to be that you actually really came to see, which is just, you want to see Spider-Man punch Doc Ock in the face and spin some webs and swing around. You don't need to Peter Parker being a you know nebbish in high school and getting bitten by a radioactive spider. Everybody
1: knows that. You want to see Paul Stanley flying through the air, shoot an eye beam, and then walk down the eye beam his eye just shot to the earth.
0: And that's exactly what you got. but you know i mean for all it's for all its faults at least it did that it just jumped right in and we went with it it didn't try to do any build up or set up of what where and why because nobody cared you wanted to see the action you wanted to see the costumes move around you know and that's what you got now talking about the the plot of the whole thing i guess we should mention that what it was about because we kind of skirted around that so far the movie opens up at Magic Mountain Amusement Park and apparently it's the movies version of Magic Mountain because uh, Anthony Zerby is the guy who supposedly built all the attractions and everything there who ends up becoming the phantom he's the big engineer of the thing and the owner of the park uh is they're having financial troubles so they're having a kiss come play a big concert which is going to bring in thousands and thousands of dollars in revenue to the park. And Anthony Zerbe's character is not happy because a lot of his uh, the funds for his research are being diverted to bring Kiss in. And so that's what's really set him off. And they're going to probably put him out to pasture because they say that his animatronic characters and all are old news, pretty much. So he's also developed this new technology he keeps talking about. He needs more funds to research. And the new technology pretty much turns human people into zombie drones zombie human robots whatever you want to call them
1: like you do like you
0: do and sam is the is the guy who uh what is the girl's name the character's
1: name in this it's already fled me yeah uh
0: anyway sam and his girlfriend we'll call her stella (laughs) it'll it'll come to me when i stop thinking about it but anyway sam works for abner devereux Zerby's character and he leaves her in the middle of the park to go check with Zerby to see if he's needed anymore that day or whatever he doesn't come back she's freaking out can't find him they were supposed to meet it I guess later on she goes to the kiss show and there is the backstage area and somehow she gets past the gate and the security guys are arguing whether she can't go any further kiss Caesar Paul fires his hypno laser beam out of his eye and it hits the security guards and her and freezes them in their spot and they talk to her and paul says something like sam's still in the park and then kiss leaves and then at some point sam has taken a bunch of pictures of kiss Devereaux is building robots of kiss the girl uh gets meets up with kiss and gets their help to find sam they go in the park and fight a bunch of robots get captured the next night of the big concert Devereaux sends his kiss robots on stage instead of kiss and they sing a song called Rip and Destroy to the tune of Hotter Than Hell. Rip, 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 and destroy, which is supposed to incite the crowd to riot and tear the park apart.
1: I know there's supposed to be something technologically supernatural going on there, but I, I love how the crowd starts booing when they play Rip and Destroy as though they're offended that they're getting <laughs> Rip and Destroy rather than yeah. Hotter Than Hell, as opposed to being like, what is this awesome new take on Hotter Than yeah. Hell? This is a new song we haven't heard. Wow. Yeah
0: sweet so it was probably some hip hypnotism involved also in that with it we're not getting uh yeah but, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. anyway so kiss uh and oh and through the course of devereux the phantom has stolen their talismans which is that's how they got captured because he had a, a laser that zapped the talismans and reduced their powers but they get their talismans back they get their powers back they come flying out of nowhere and land on the stage and end up fighting their stunt men. i mean the robot doubles and everything ends well at the end now here's something that's kind of cool in the european version now tell me the tv version ends with them she's crying because devereux is not answering her and can't save sam and paul reaches up and pulls a little transistor off sam's neck right right okay and then devereux turns around and he's got white hair and looks like he's a statue right yeah And and the movie ends with them going into like rock and roll all night or shout it out loud anyway it ends with them performing
1: now, shout It Out Loud is, is at the beginning.
0: Okay, but it, the movie ends with them performing, right? Right. Okay, the European version, this is this is a big different part too. That last scene where Kiss is standing there and Sam's there and she's crying and Abner's not answering her. Paul looks at the transistor and fires the beam from his eye at the transistor and it sparks and Sam wakes up. And then they turn Abner around. You see him have the long, has the long white hair and he doesn't move. And then the scene fades back to the park. With Abner walking under one of the roller coasters to the tune of Mister Make Believe and kind of grinning and walking away, so was the Abner that turned around on the table in that scene? Was that one of the robots and he got and he escaped?
1: I think that is uh, that's a safe bet. So that was kind of cool, actually. So he
0: was the Phantom.
1: Zerby lives to act another day. Exactly. I have to say there are moments in Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. And let's be clear that I'm sure the audience appreciates it. But you just gave this movie way more attention in terms of its story than it (laughs) deserved, right? (laughs) Like, I think Hanna-Barbera owes you money for giving that much effort and brain space (laughs) to the story of Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. But there, there are moments in this thing where Zerby seems to think he's in something good. I was going
0: to bring that up. Zerby is going for broke in this. He's not overacting. He's not chewing the scenery. He's just a damn good actor, and he's giving it his all. He's you know making sense out of what he's given, and he's fantastic in this, where everybody else is eh, in a low-budget TV movie acting.
1: He has some perfunctory mad scientist scenes that he plays as such. But yeah. he's good at that. Yeah. He's good at that, so it doesn't read as poor or like he didn't do the work, you know, the scenes aren't worth much. He's pretty good at doing that kind of thing anyway. So they're okay. But there, there, there are scenes here and there, the scene where he gets fired by the, uh, the owner of the amusement park, for example. Yeah. Uh, where he, he seems to think he's in something good. And I, and it's been a while since I've watched the version that's on the DVD. So yeah. if there's any contrasts here, uh, you'll have to let me know. But I love after he gets fired and he's a, he's a diswrought and destitute and he's walking through the park and they're announcing... Preparations for KISS to uh, whatever's going to happen next with, with KISS over the uh-huh. loudspeakers and you just hear KISS, KISS, KISS over and over again and he, he smiles like a crazy smile because KISS really has very little to do with him getting fired. Yeah. But I guess hearing KISS over and over again on the intercom... After he got fired, uh, gave him the idea to to use Kiss uh, uh, to wreak havoc and take his revenge out upon them. The moments just prior to this one where he's being fired and he's arguing with the owner where he says something about you bringing this rock and roll into my park, which I uh, I quite enjoyed.
0: (laughs) There's a little extra scene, I think, in that that I don't remember at the beginning there where the owner's talking to Abner while they're riding the tram through the park explaining more about the situation that's going on and abner has a little more dialogue there and also when you the first time you see him i think it's just before that scene he's it's the same shot of him walking under the coaster that's at the end where they're playing mr make-believe that's how he's right. introduced with that music too at the beginning of the movie which is kind of cool kind of bookending him um which again is probably giving this way more credit or <laughs> it
1: deserves but I quite like Anthony Zerbe and Omega Man. Oh, yeah. The things that that he's really well known for in, in genre circles. But I just wanted to point out that he gives more than uh, may have been expected from someone in his position. When, when you have a dialogue to deliver, like, come ahead, kiss. Yeah. Well, that there's not much yeah. he can do with that. But the, the other dialogue
0: where he's talking to the owner and where he's talking to the the girl, he's he is definitely the best thing in this movie. He's he's playing it completely. I don't want to say straight because it's not so much that it's campy. It's just he's bringing his performance as a level or two or three above everybody else's insofar as being just natural and, and good, except for those those some of those mad scientist lines, like you said, where he what are you going to do with those?
1: And if you want to compare and contrast, then uh, compare and contrast him with the band,
0: (laughs) yeah, or or the um the the bikers, the biker the trio biker gang guys.
1: I'll smoke you, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean there 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 are a couple of at least a couple of just classic classic classically bad moments dialogue wise, especially everyone's favorite easy cat man they are serious
0: yeah now talking about dialogue that's a couple things we do have to talk about uh one with ace not having many lines originally that was the script he didn't have any lines except act, and he threatened to walk off and they wrote him some more lines but the european version they cut most of those out so you get what you get with him paul uh none of them were have ever acted before this in their life so i'll give him a little on that paul's really trying paul's trying but he's trying too hard yeah
1: he's trying and, and i appreciate the trying it's more than you get from peter yeah uh ace is just naturally charming yeah so him just kind of him kind of being there is uh, is amusing he's trying too hard he the accent is still dominant yeah Uh, he he hasn't quite worked through it yet as he will later uh, uh, in his life at this point it still makes a bit of a mockery out of everything he's trying to do coupled with the the stiff line delivery and but physically, in terms of his expressions and, and things of that nature, he, he's he's trying. Yeah, he, and some of it works. Some of it's okay. He looks cool sometimes.
0: Yeah, when it's him and not the, the black guy that is his stuntman, yeah. Which we'll get into <laughs> that in a second. But Gene, they they decided in their infinite wisdom, whoever the production team decided to, because he's the demon, to put this modulator on his voice. To give him this, this hollow demonic sound echo to his voice, which just sounds ridiculous ridiculous the whole time no
1: gratitude need be voiced your mind speaks to us yeah that i think the modulator is okay if they had used it here and there dialed it back a little bit here and there if, if, if it wasn't every line he spoke had it yeah it, it would have been okay but every after it's every line even the mundane ones then it's just silly yeah and the the roar was pretty silly too yeah
0: and then there's peter there's a couple different schools on this. Uh, rumors, reasons, whatever, that he didn't show up to do looping, where you have to go and re-record stuff that didn't come out good, and apparently his Brooklyn accent was thicker than Ace's, and he was hard to understand <laughs> on the film. A lot of the things he said, so his entire dialogue was looped in post by Michael Bell,
1: well-known voice actor, uh, the voice of Duke on G.I. Joe
0: exactly and on one of the smurfs i can't remember which one it was more than more than
1: one of the smurfs i believe yeah he's just he's just one of those guys that if you grew up in a certain era or, or know cartoons of a certain era you just know the voice even if you can't immediately say who it belongs to which is a problem because when you hear peter <laughs> you think one i know that voice two it isn't peter chris and three that's a cartoon voice
0: it's like why is duke from g.i. joe in a kiss movie? <laughs> He tries, though. He tries to give it a little bit of the New York accent in a couple lines. Yo, kiss! (laughs) Oh, God, but the dialogue is... is, Oh, that's a treat, though. Now, we're talking about Stuntman a minute ago. Uh, One of the reasons you see Ace's Stuntman a lot is apparently he walked off the set a lot of times when he got bored. And so they had to keep filming. So his Stuntman filled in a lot of the the scenes, uh, mainly the action stuff. But I don't know why... They chose his stuntman, they chose a black guy to be Ace's stuntman, and he's also smaller in stature than Ace's.
1: Well, a stuntman really can be anybody if they're used properly. The issue is that it's crystal clear you're looking at stunt people and not the KISS members yeah. during many of these scenes. Uh, there's no attempt made to hide it. I wonder if they thought the makeup—that's
0: exactly—they th- they thought the makeup and the wigs would hide it, and it, it just doesn't. I mean, the stru- the facial structure, even the guy that's doing Paul, is completely different in facial features than Paul.
1: I think maybe the issue is there weren't many Kiss tribute bands back then, <laughs> because having seen my share of Kiss tribute bands, I can tell you the makeup is not enough to make you think someone is Ace or Paul or Gene or, or Peter. That's not going to work at all.
0: Not by a damn sight. Not by a damn sight, that's for sure. I've seen a few myself, and I know exactly what you mean. Some of them are very good, but to look like the actual people, it's just not going to happen. And I think, you know, one, being that this was a low-budget movie, it was made very quickly, and they figured nobody's going to notice. If it was edited different, they, people wouldn't notice that much. But they show the stuntman's face in medium close shots quite a few times and again like i said it didn't matter paul the guy who did paul was built about the same the guy that did peter's built about the same the guy that did gene was pretty close but the stuntman doing ace was shorter and and just smaller overall so even from behind when it's him you can tell it's not ace the guy that did peter the wig was just bad it was too tall <laughs> for peter's hair and
1: it was it was a different color too wasn't it it, it was
0: um it was, it was too gray. Yeah. Too gray, where Peter has salt and pepper. This was just like, it looked like they grayed a black wig. And the Gene, that guy, he's just, he wasn't as noticeable as the others, but it definitely was not Gene. His face was rounder than Jean's is, so that didn't help. But the the scene at the end where they're fighting the robot doubles is, is funny to watch, and you could maybe do a drinking game with it, because... They keep flip flopping back and forth between who's the real kiss and who's the robots. Sometimes it's the stunt men are the robots and kiss is the real guys are kiss. Sometimes kiss are the robots and the stunt men are supposed to be the real kiss. And sometimes the stunt men are fighting themselves. Like the ace double is fighting himself in a couple of the scenes, the way it's cut. You know, it's like the stunt man'll hit ace and then it'll cut to the stunt man rolling on the ground. And it's the same thing with Peter and with Paul. Right, right, right. Paul f- switches between being the real Paul and being the robot Paul. And the stuntman does the same thing back and forth a few times. It's, whew, it's something now this thing has developed a, a notorious reputation over the years. And rightly so for a lot of the things we've said, I will have, you know that <laughs> in the late eighties when VHS was King or the mid eighties, I guess, This was not to be found. This movie had not been released because, of course, Kiss didn't want it released, I guess. But eventually it did get released and I found out it was it was going to be released. But you couldn't just readily get movies that came out on VHS Buy them. They weren't everywhere in stores like they like DVDs are now at this point. I don't think there was even a Suncoast video at the mall yet when this came out. There were video rental stores mainly and videotape to get a video movie they were expensive just to buy a videotape it wasn't full-blown if i'm not mistaken the timeline here because i remember when it was coming out heard about it my dad knew a guy that owned a video store and he got him to order me a copy of kiss meets the phantom big clamshell box i still have it and it, it was 50 bucks to get this movie
1: vhs rental was king up until the late 80s vhs cassettes were priced for businesses to buy So I remember you would be able to walk into Errol's video store, for example, in uh, 1984, and they'd have a big catalog on a podium, and you'd walk over to the catalog and flip through it, and they'd have all these these titles listed that they could order, and uh, they were priced at $80 or something yeah. outrageous like that at the time, 80 or $90. I remember looking at that and thinking it was extremely cool, this idea that you could own these movies, but also just horrendously expensive. But that starts to change in the in the late 80s, I believe, certainly by yeah. you know, 88, 89, uh, 20 bucks or something like that. You could get a lot of movies for in a in a store because that's that's the period at uh, at the end of the 80s and the very beginning of the 90s when... Movies as gifts would become common in my family.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then they started like Suncoast appeared in the mall, which was one of the greatest stores ever at the time, where it was just all movies, all VHS everywhere.
1: And I think that's our only official tangent for this podcast. Our only official (laughs) tangent. Yeah. So so. far.
0: Yeah. Now by the end of the eighties or into the maybe early nineties, Of course, it became available on VHS for like 10 bucks when the VHS started to be plentiful and commonplace everywhere just before DVDs started coming out. And so, but I, you know, I still have that $50 copy. I'm never getting rid of that.
1: (laughs) Well, the movie uh, apparently got good ratings when it aired. It was uh, uh, the second highest rated TV movie of 1978, just behind James Clavel's Shogun.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Which is, uh, which is quite amusing.
0: Well, you know, you can, like we say, consider the popularity of kiss at the time. I mean, they were were pretty much that generation's Beatles. And as far as popularity and it was a big event to see that movie when it came out, which is that era of that type of hype and that type of event thing is just gone because things are so readily accessible, uh, instantly accessible nowadays, you know?
1: For that band in particular, this was their moment. This was their moment of greatest pop culture saturation where everyone knew them and they sold millions and millions of records and and Kiss and Star Wars in 77, 78. You hear that said quite a bit. Uh, oh or, yeah, or Star Wars and Kiss, if you will, but you, <laughs> you get the point. They they were a genuine pop culture phenomena at this point, and that would continue into Dynasty, but then quickly fall apart.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, consider how many bands cross generations at the peak of their popularity, or just before that. You know, whereas you had the diehard rock and roll guys going to the concerts who had been fans since the early days and were fans of, of rock and roll and bands and you know and music and stuff, and then it crossed down to young. kids kids who like comic books and superheroes and action figures, and they merchandise themselves to be able to appeal across the board like that. And there's not many other bands that did that or could do that and would succeed at it. I mean, do you think, could Led Zeppelin have done that? Could they have had that kind of appeal to that broad age range or any other big band of the time that were successful, hugely successful bands putting out records and doing concerts? But merchandising wise and appealing to that broad uh, range, age range of crowd, KISS was it, man. You know,
1: I expect that uh, Led Zeppelin would not necessarily have wanted to have that same kind of appeal. But the answer to the question is still no, no, they, they wouldn't have that. Yeah. That kind of appeal. Kiss was a very specific thing, let's say.
0: And they did appeal to different people for different reasons across the board. Like I said, you know, you got the hardcore rock guys who, you know, and you read these things in the tell-all books and other stuff about building a huge fan base when Alive came out. Then Destroyer came out, and a lot of those hardcore fans were pissed off at Destroyer because it didn't sound like Kiss to them. It was too overproduced. It didn't sound like that hard rock grinding touring band that they were used to it was too smooth and what's this orchestral stuff and these sound effects and all that where for a lot of us that was our first impression of kiss our first introduction to kiss was destroyer so it didn't you know it didn't bother us and then from then on you got more of the pop culture exposure after that you know what i mean
1: no i do i know exactly what you mean it, you know it wasn't all uh, uh didn't happen all at once this idea that one minute they were making alive, and the next moment they were a pop culture phenomenon with a comic book and all those things. It's a question of, of degrees and of a of a growing presence that they had. And as they went along that path, then there were purists much earlier than Phantom of the Park who thought that uh, the band had lost their way because they'd become more more commercially appealing. And I think, yeah. I think in the case of Destroyer, that has a a unique style of commercial appeal or an attempt at a unique style of commercial appeal. I do wonder, though, I was going to ask you this question. Uh-huh. If after Phantom and the solo albums and all that business, Kiss had returned with another love gun as opposed to Dynasty and then Unmasked, do you think it would have made a difference? Was their reputation as a straight up hard rock band musically dead because of all this or could they have turned it around with another straight up hard rock album which love gun essentially is i mean you have a little silliness with uh then she kissed me and you have creepy though it might be christine 16 is a bit bubblegum, but aside from that it's a pretty straight straight up rock record yeah
0: it's a little more poppy than dressed to kill or hotter than hell but it still feels like kiss Still feels like classic Kiss at that point. And I, to answer your question, yeah, I think if they would have released another Love Gun or Destroyer, you know, kept it in that vein, Rock and Roll Over, which is an outstanding album, I think they would have kept on coasting for a couple more years on at, at the crest of their popularity. I think Dynasty just blindsided everybody. So drastic a difference, which to me, listen to it, it is, but it's not as drastic as Unmasked is.
1: I love Dynasty. Oh, I love it too. I don't have an issue with it retroactively, but you have to imagine if you were a teenager at that time and you had been a Kiss fan all along and and that's where you had landed. I I do get it, right? In retrospect, it doesn't bother me and I was too young for it to bother me at the time. I was the right age to find all of this very appealing. uh, uh, Exactly,
0: me too, me too. At that
1: time, so. But yeah, I do think if the band had refocused on a more straight up rock record, and touring and, and being a band and and recovering a bit from the Phantom of the Park uh, experience, let's call it, uh, things might have gone a little bit differently. But following up that whole thing and this whole new reputation as a as a children's act with a a disco single probably uh, was not helping them very much. All things considered, yeah,
0: you know, because then they released Love Gun, then they released the solo albums, and then I guess Double Platinum or Live Two in there together. What if they would have taken the solo albums, the best songs off of each one of those, and the four of them recorded it as the next Kiss album?
1: Yeah, I think that is exactly what needed to happen. Yeah. Now, if that had happened, we wouldn't have gotten Paul and Ace's albums, which I, I personally cherish. But oh yeah, if you take the best, let's say, three songs, hard choice, particularly for Paul's for me. Yeah. The best three songs off of each of those. You know what? No.
0: <laughs> well no because we could just take one off of we're Peter's. gonna
1: say yeah 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 we're gonna keep peter at one song would you, you, okay this is i'm belaboring the point you understand where i'm where hey, i know yeah, what you're talking yeah, about yeah, yeah yeah
0: yeah yeah you know i think that would have been that would have been an interesting direction or experiment or whatever, whatever you want to, call it, to see what would have happened if they would have done that instead of the solo albums i think the solo albums needed to happen for them as individuals to keep them from breaking up On the spot right then. And of course, everything we've read, that's kind of what the reason they happened is what it said. But it didn't help keep them together because it gave the ones that were having a problem, i.e. Peter and Ace, a taste of doing something on their own and making them think they could be as popular as the full band. Again, going back to having to be around at the time to see the popularity of the band and what they were really like in the pop culture world there there's no way in hell you could do that again or recreate that or or any one of them could be as successful as the whole band was at that level and it's just ridiculous to even think it they were yeah they were definitely on drugs at the time thinking some of them literally yeah (laughs) but the movie man if you have not seen this movie i and i say this every every podcast watch the film we're talking about make your own judgments, enjoy it, what have you. This, and I'll say watch it anyway, but to enjoy it, it one, I think you really got to be a Kiss fan because if you're not, you're, you're not going to enjoy anything they do regardless. <laughs> but I sat back and watched it, not having watched it in a lot of years. Before I put it on, while I was getting ready, I was going through in my head, going through, trying to remember what it felt like. The first time I watched it and as it was coming on and the opening credits and the first couple scenes, I did get a little of that feeling back, a little of that nostalgia and that kind of excitement of of getting to watch it. So that in and of itself made it worth it for me to watch it again as it goes on. I get a little more critical of it because I'm thinking, you know, where we are going to be talking about this for the podcast. But being a huge Kiss fan and being able to have access to this and just getting a twinge of being that eight or nine year old kid that night sitting in front of the TV was was really awesome.
1: This movie has no value whatsoever. If you are not a Kiss fan, Let's (laughs) let's be crystal clear on this. We didn't even mention the director. It's directed by Gordon Hessler, the guy that did uh, uh, Scream and Scream Again, I think, and and a couple other things. Oh, well, that explains a lot. Yeah, but but by this... (laughs) By this point, he was working in television and had been for a while, and it just looks like a TV movie. I mean, it has a moment or two that stands out. Yeah, The the aforementioned Zerby slowly going crazy listening to Kiss being spoken about over the intercom is a bit of a moment, but (laughs) by and large, forget it. I wouldn't be without it. Oh, no because I'm a Kiss fan and if I didn't have access to it if it was just something I that existed as a legend that once upon a time there was this movie and I didn't have access to it it would drive me nuts <laughs> <laughs> having access to it. There's little things in it, I think all of which we've really talked about for the most part. Well,
0: I think you can enjoy it if you're not necessarily a Kiss fan. I think some people can enjoy it the same way that they enjoy The Forbidden Zone or Plan 9 from Outer Space or things like that. If they are people that enjoy truly bizarre or bad movies this this slides into that category if you're not a kiss fan
1: i don't necessarily disagree except to say that as a television movie it moves and looks like a television movie much of the time but oh know, yeah the band looks cool though here and there here and there i like those robes those robes they're wearing that looks oh look, yeah they look cool in those you know now, those are sweet now yeah. hanging out uh uh you know in the chairs by the pool maybe not so much but the robes are cool
0: yeah the the elder robes
1: yeah. <laughs> More or less.
0: <laughs> yeah, those are pretty sweet.
1: Uh you know, there's actually
0: there's a amigo uh replacement part company that makes uh action figure parts and clothes and accessories and all that make those robes for the Kiss figures.
1: As well they should. Uh,
0: yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. And there should be a, a company that makes them for the KISS fan, life size robes too. But... As
1: as well they should.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh whew. It's something special, let me tell you. And, you know, I've been been after you, and one day I'm going to sit you down and you're going to watch. Now, anybody out there who has not seen this, if you're a Kiss fan, you owe it to yourself, the Scooby-Doo meets Kiss movie that came out a year or two ago. It is the Kiss in animated form that the, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old me and any Kiss fan back then wanted it is so much fun and so awesome they don't take themselves that seriously they do poke fun at things but it's not super slapstick and campy uh it has its moments and again it takes place in an amusement park also (laughs) and it is head and shoulders so much better than this movie
1: is
0: (laughs) one day and one gene gene paul and of course it it was recent so it's tommy and eric they all do their own voices (laughs) throughout the whole movie (laughs) and there's some jack kirby tribute at the end of it too which is amazing
1: but there's no rip and destroy no
0: no there's it, not but uh there's a lot of kiss music and um yeah it's just it's a beautiful thing it's what this it's what kiss meets the phantom should have been let's put it that way <laughs> oh boy this is readily available uh if you're looking for it uh you found it online where'd you watch it off youtube or what
1: no it's not on youtube in its entirety uh it was a Facebook something or other I ended up on. It just popped up when I Google searched for it.
0: Okay, I have not checked Amazon to see if it's available in any form. It may be, it may not be. Um, The Kissology box set, Kissology 2, uh, Attack of the Phantoms is on there. I'm sure you can find on eBay a VHS copy of it. The only way it was ever released on DVD that I found other than the Kissology box set was they were trying to release it on DVD for a lot of years, but I don't think Kiss wanted it released or something, but it got released, but there were some rights issues, so it got pulled. This was a few years ago. So, there's a limited number of those DVDs out and about that people have purchased floating. I don't think you'll be able to find one for sale, but and if you do, it'll probably be real expensive. So the Kissology box set is probably your best bet at this point indeed yeah unless you've got it unless you have you know still have a vhs machine and you may be able to find a because there were a lot of that those ten dollar copies floating around at one when they came out um so there are probably still a bunch of those floating around if you if you want it on vhs but other than that that's
1: about it that's about it so
0: uh i don't know you got anything else on this
1: i'm spent i'm good
0: I will post as many pictures as I can and maybe hopefully some behind the scenes stuff I can find on the Phantasma After Dark Facebook page. And, uh, you know, it maybe I can, hell hell may, Maybe I can find a trailer for the Attack of the Phantoms or something. That'd be awesome to see. I've never seen that uh, one. So neither have I. Yeah, no. it'd be interesting. We'll see. see what's out there, what I can find. And I'll put that up on the Facebook page when this is all said and done. Yeah. So that's about it. That's all I got. How about you? Me too. All right. Well, till next time, everybody. Thanks for listening. Good night. No
1: gratitude need be voiced. Your minds speak to us.
0: Well said.